And let's turn in our Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24 this morning. Luke chapter 24. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And you can just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands, and that way you can hear the Word of God today and also uh, read it as well, have double the impact. Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 1. Now, in the first day of the week, very early in the morning... They and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. And then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna... Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they didn't believe the report. But Peter arose, and he ran to the tomb. Stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love for every single man and woman in this room. We honor you and we bless you and we magnify you as our creator. We thank you that you are the lover of our souls. Thank you that you want a relationship with each one of us. Thank you that you want each and every one of us to spend eternity with you in heaven. And thank you for the price that you were willing to pay in order to make that possible for each one of us this morning. No matter what our sin, no matter what our pride, no matter what our past, no matter what is there, Lord, nothing greater than the forgiveness that is found in the sacrifice of your Son. And Lord, we thank you for his resurrection and all that it means to us and all that it's intended to mean to everyone. And we pray that you would give each and every one of us here this morning a supernatural ability to hear your voice through your word today. And we ask these things of you the work of your Holy Spirit in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Imagine that you made arrangements uh, to meet a friend at a theater in San Francisco in order to uh, go and enjoy a very highly regarded play that was being performed there. And... 
circumstances occurred in your life on that particular day that as you were making your way to San Francisco, uh, there was a delay and you didn't arrive at the theater until the beginning of the fourth act. Well, what would happen to you if uh, that circumstance occurred to you? Well, as you settled in next to your friend, you'd be at a complete loss at trying to understand the significance of all that is being said, all that is the sights and uh, the sounds and the dialogue that are going on up on the stage. You wouldn't be able to understand the significance of any of it for the simple reason that you sit there completely ignorant of the storyline already revealed in the first three acts. And so you would find yourself leaning over the entire fourth act, uh, whispering questions to your friend uh, in an attempt to get enough background in order to be able to understand the significance of what it is that you're watching occur up on the stage. So your mind would be filled with questions like, who is that? Uh, What's that person's relationship to this person? Why are they saying that? Why is that uh, significant? And I think in a very real way, this is the plight of the person who walks into a church on Sunday uh, morning, Resurrection Sunday, and here's the Bible's account of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead without knowing anything about him from the rest of the Bible, without knowing what makes up and constitutes Acts 1, Acts 2, and uh, Act 3 related to the glorious story that set the stage for this great event uh, of his resurrection. And for this reason, this morning, I want to give you, in the words of Paul Harvey, the rest of the story and the first three acts of Jesus' life or the first three acts of this whole account that leads up to the... um, a resurrection of Jesus from the dead so that each of us can understand what's happened in Jesus' resurrection from the dead and then why in the world does that, is that, should that be important to me? What significance does it have related to my life? So Act 1 begins all the way back in the first three chapters of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis chapters 1 through 3, which records for us the creation and the fall of man. The Bible teaches that we were created by God, that we were created in the image of God. The Bible teaches that we were created for relationship or fellowship with God. But in those first three chapters of the book of Genesis, there's also the record of the fall of man. The Bible teaches that Adam and Eve in that ancient garden of Eden, uh, they sinned by partaking of the forbidden fruit, and that sin is known as the fall. God had commanded them and said to them, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Very next scene in the record of the Bible, Eve is at the base of that tree, Satan tempts her. She partakes of the forbidden fruit. Adam does soon afterward. Sometimes people speculate about what fruit it is that was 
the tree uh, that they were forbidden to eat of and so often you see the pictures in maybe a great museum and they've got an apple. Eve's got an apple in her hand or whatever and they're just trying to ruin the apple market or something. I don't know. We really don't know uh, what fruit it was and we don't need to know because the fruit wasn't at fault. God's prohibition concerning eating the fruit simply afforded Adam and Eve a means by which they could express their love and their loyalty and their appreciation toward God through their obedience. Without the freedom to choose to disobey, then our obedience is meaningless in terms of an expression of our love or our loyalty toward God. Now let me back up just a little uh, a little bit and uh, talk about this uh, fall, the creation of man and the fall. The Bible, again, it declares that man was created in God's image, Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so we were made in the image of God. How were we made in the image of God? Is God uh, 5 foot 10 inches tall and 170 pounds? No, that's not how we were made in the image of God. We're made in the image of God in that God is a trinity or a triunity of Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We were made in the image of God in that God created us as an inferior trinity of spirit uppermost, soul, that is our intellect and our emotions, and our body, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, spirit, soul, and body. And Adam and Eve had a relationship with God in the realm of the Spirit. God spoke to Adam and Eve, told them not to partake of that forbidden fruit, and he said significantly to them that in the day that you do partake of it, you will surely die. On that day! And so, on the day they partook of the fruit, forbidden fruit, and they died. Did they die physically? Impossible. Our presence in the room here this morning uh, demonstrates that that's not how they died. What happened is they died spiritually, cut off from a relationship with God. And there is only one solution to the catastrophe of this condition of a spiritual death, and that is to have a spiritual birth. And that's why Jesus said, unless a man is born again by the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And But if a person comes to God and says, God, I believe your assessment of me. I am a sinner. I am less than perfect. But I believe that you love me so much that you sent your son to die on the cross to provide me with the forgiveness of sins, and I put my faith in Jesus as my Savior. I turn from my own directions in life, put my trust in Him. I give you my life. And when a person does that, God's Holy Spirit comes into their life, and now, once again, we have capacity for relationship with God, the relationship with God that we were intended to have and created to have. All of us are born in a spiritually dead condition as descendants of Adam and Eve. That's why we need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. It re- gives us that capacity for fellowship with uh, God, that spiritual birth. And this is why a person, until a person 
puts their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and experiences this spiritual birth in their life, there's always that nagging sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. No matter how much things we accumulate, no matter how many relationships we have, no matter how many titles or degrees or experiences or vacations or hobbies that we have in life, no matter what we partake of, once we attain to that thing and we think this is the thing that is going to silence this sense that there must be something more to life, this is going to be the thing that satisfies that and silences that voice, we attain to that thing and we discover there's still that sense within our lives. And, and so there, we feel that and we have that sense because until we are born again and enter into a relationship with God, then there is the reason we have that sense that there must be something more to life than I've experienced is there is something more to life than I have experienced And it is the most important thing in life, and that is to have a relationship with God. Now, the fall of Adam and Eve not only introduced spiritual death into the human condition, but it also introduced physical death as well, because ultimately Adam and Eve died because... And death was was something that God never intended for them or for us. Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 12. He said, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, death is a consequence of sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, I think that there's a possibility that in the privacy of one or two hearts here today, somebody may protest at this particular point and say, listen, I was invited by a friend or a family member, and uh, this is very nice what you're saying, but I don't believe in the Garden of Eden. And I don't believe in Adam and Eve. I think all of it is absolute mythology. And how in the world can I know that the Bible's record of the fall of man is true? What proof do you have that I am a descendant of Adam, that I am fallen, just as the Bible teaches? God has an answer for your question, because it's a good question. And God always answers good questions. The first evidence is death. Death reveals you to be a descendant of that ancient Adam and Eve because you die. And God makes it as simple as he can. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he said, In Adam all die. And death reveals every single one of us to be a descendant of Adam, and it ties each and every one of us to that ancient Garden of Eden. The Bible says there's a second evidence for the, uh, that we are all descendants of Adam and Eve and we're all bearing the consequences of their fall in that uh, Garden of Eden. And that second av- evidence of the fact that we are fallen descendants of Adam and Eve is this thing called conscience. And Paul speaks of it in Romans chapter 2. The world that we live in there is a uniform conscience worldwide related to certain things. All around the world, no matter how primitive the culture is or advanced the culture is or 
where it is geographically in, in the world, murder is always wrong. Stealing is always wrong. Adultery is always wrong, and so forth. And there is the con- within the conscience of man this knowledge that not murdering, not stealing, not committing adultery is always right. But the interesting thing about our conscience is that our conscience is higher than our actual practice as human beings. There's not a person in this room and there's not a person in this world that lives up to the standard of their conscience. We all live below the standard of our conscience. Why? Because our conscience does not have its origin in us. It does not have its origin in man but in God who is higher than us. And so our conscience testifies to the fact, number one, that we have been created by someone who is greater than us and that we have fallen from that something higher. And so all day, every day, very practically in our lives, where we come to the end of the day and we realize in this place, in this place, in this place, in this area of my life, I live below my conscience. I live below that standard of right and wrong that is inside of me. And that gap between your conscience and your actual practice is communicating and blinking like this great neon light. You are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen. You were something greater. Man was at one time something greater than he is today, but he has fallen from that higher estate. And, and there is uh, that recognition, and the conscience communicates it. And it's confirmed to us every day in life in a million different ways. Every time you hear two children playing in your living room, if you've ever had two children playing in your living room, and then suddenly one of them cries out, That's not fair! Where'd that come from? Where did that innate sense of fairness in conscience come from? It came from God. Nobody had to teach it to them. We're born with it. Well, we move quickly to Act 2 in all of this. And Act 2, Act two covers all the way from Genesis chapter 3 to the end of the book of Malachi, the whole Old Testament. And in that section of the Bible, God promises to send to mankind a Savior who will save us from the catastrophe of the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And further, God took great pains to describe prophetically the Savior or the Messiah that he would send into the world to provide us with forgiveness of sins and to undo the consequences of the fall of an Adam and Eve, consequences that each of us bear. And then he describes him so that when this man appears in human history, we will recognize him for who he is. And so the description begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. God declared that this Savior would be born into the world. And not only would he be born, but he'd be born of a virgin. He wouldn't come by way of a a UFO or, (laughs) uh, sorry to bum you UFOologists out on all of that, but he wouldn't come in a fiery chariot. He would be born into the world, God said. 
and he would be born of a virgin. Genesis chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 7, through the prophet Micah, God declared that the Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. God further declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he'd be divine. He would be God in human flesh. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse, uh, and also in chapter 7, God declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he'd be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And further, that he would come into the world specifically through the tribe of Judah. God becomes even more specific about the bloodline of that this a Savior would be born into the world through and says that he would be born uh, as a descendant of King David, the great prophet king of Israel. God declared that he would be rejected and that he would die at the hands of the very one, ones that he came to save, Isaiah chapter 53, that at his death he'd be betrayed by a close friend. He would be betrayed by that close friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would be falsely accused and yet be silent before his accusers. He would be beaten. He would be spat upon. He, that his death would involve the piercing of his hands and of his feet. That the soldiers would gamble for his clothing while he was being crucified. That he would be crucified among transgressors or between thieves. That his side would be pierced. The Old Testament scriptures also declared that the Messiah would not stay in that dead condition long enough for his body to corrupt, but that he would rise again from the dead. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, the uh, Lord declared that the Messiah would not remain dead long enough. He would die, but he would not remain dead long enough to experience corruption, but he would be resurrected. And Psalm 16, verse 10 declares this, For you, David, speaking to the Lord, will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One, that is the Messiah, to see corruption. And we could go on and on and spend the whole morning detailing this incredible prophetic portrait that God gives of a coming Savior into human history to save us from the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the consequences of our sin as well. Well, this brings us then to Act 3, which uh, takes us out of the Old Testament prophecies and brings us into the Gospels of the New Testament and the description of the birth and the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus that we find there. And we find as we read the Gospels, we read of Jesus' fulfillment of every one of the prophecies that I've read to you. And it's estimated that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies given concerning him in his first coming. So he said, you weren't kidding when you said we could talk about it all morning. Just to read the prophecies would take the rest of the morning, let alone to elaborate on them. Do you know why God has given us this amazing prophetic description of the Savior that he would send into the world? It's in order so that when he came into human history, each of us would be able to unmistakably recognize him for who he is. 
that there wouldn't be any doubt in our mind. It wouldn't be door number one, door number two, door number three, or they bring the line up in front of us, and we look at, and there's eight people in front of us, and you say, man, it could be any one of these three people. I don't have any idea. But God gives the, makes the description so detailed and so complete as he does so that we will then be able to recognize him unmistakably in human history and then make him our Savior personally. And the fact of the matter is, is that God made his prophetic description so detailed and precise that only one person in all of human history matches the prophetic portrait. And that's Jesus himself. God has made it unmistakable for us. It's interesting to realize that one of the prophecies concerning the Messiah that God made through the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament is time-sensitive in Daniel chapter 9. And through Daniel, the prophet, God prophesied of the very day of Messiah's Uh, being unveiled to the nation of Israel, a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled on the Sunday prior to Easter known as Palm Sunday, which was celebrated uh, last Sunday. And so God gave the very date that the Messiah would be unveiled to the nation, even as Jesus did on that very date in Jerusalem in his triumphal entry into the city. What's the point of all of that, the time-sensitiveness of that prophecy? It means that it would be impossible for anyone claiming to be the Messiah today of fulfilling that prophecy. Why? Maybe 2,000 years too late. In other words, if Jesus isn't the Messiah, then nobody is the Messiah. But Jesus is the Messiah. And he is the Savior of the world. If you're new to the Bible, it is vital that you understand the prophetic element associated with Jesus' life. The prophecies given by God so that we would recognize him as the Messiah when he came. If I knew nothing of the Bible and someone came up to me and they declared to me, Jesus is the Savior of the world and you need to make him your Lord and your Savior today. I would just, (laughs) I would wonder what planet are they from? Why in the world would I put my trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins any more than I would put my trust in any one of the other billions of people who have lived in all of human history? And the answer to that question is because of God's prophetic description of him. God provided this prophetic portrait in order to provide us with a reasonable faith, not a blind faith. He doesn't ask anyone to put a blind faith in Jesus, but a faith that is reasonable based upon the surest thing in all of the world, and that is the very word of God. I tell you, it's no wonder that John Stott wrote that great Christian thinker, he said, ignorance is probably the greatest enemy of the Christian faith today. Ignorance. Not intellectual. Intellectualism is not, not not by its truest definition. Intellectualism is not an enemy to Christianity. But ignorance 
concerning the Scriptures is the greatest enemy of Christianity. And for so many, as John Stott went on to say in that quote, it is that ignorance that keeps so many people from coming to know what the Bible says about Jesus and the incredible reasons that are given to us for putting our faith in Him. Well, finally, we come to the act that you've walked into the middle of here, Act 4, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. And we ask ourselves, why is the resurrection important? Why was it necessary for Jesus to rise from the dead as the Old Testament scriptures prophesied? Because Jesus' resurrection from the dead was God the Father's way of putting his stamp of approval upon Jesus and upon the message that man is justified or saved through simply putting his faith in the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit put it this way. He, that is Jesus, was raised because of our justification. During Jesus' public ministry, he had taught that he would provide the satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. He said the Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the hour of his crucifixion came, Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But how can we as human beings know that that sacrifice of his on the cross is acceptable in heaven? That it's acceptable to God the Father? And and that what he said was true? And the answer to that is the resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of his son for the forgiveness of our sins. The second reason that the resurrection is significant is because it provides us with a needed victory over death. Death is an enemy to man. Nobody can look at death and say, death is a friend. No one who has ever lost a loved one, no one who has ever watched death claim a human being. It's interesting that as you read about death in, ter- in terms of how it's described in the Scripture, it's almost personified. Death stalks every one of us in this room. It stalks, it hunts down every human being in this world and every human being in history since Adam and Eve. And so the resurrection is important because it supplies us with a victory over death. And to follow a God or to follow a religious system that, number one, has no existence, uh, no answer for the existence of God, that they don't, aren't able to say, why do we die? Why is death a part of human history? Why does it exist? People say, well, I don't think that deeply in life. It's always been here, and so I just accept it. No, we need to think more deeply about it than that. Why does death exist? Why do we die? And so 
to follow a God or a religious system that, number one, has no answer for the existence of death, and the Bible's answer for the existence of death is the fall of Adam and even the Garden of Eden, and number one, to follow a set, number two, to follow a God or a religious system that provides no victory over death would be a complete waste of time because, again, death is the enemy of all mankind. Why would I follow a God who has no answer for one, for the single greatest enemy I will face in my life and that you will face in your life? Never, ever, 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 never, ever follow any kind of a god or a savior or a guru or a person or a philosophy or a person, place, or thing or even yourself or your own thinking or your own conclusions or ideas. Don't trust any of them with your eternity if they have not conquered death. One day the religious leaders, they came up to Jesus and they said to him, Uh, Jesus, give us a sign. And what they were asking for was a sign of uh, verifying the truthfulness of his claim to be the Son of God, as a, a, a proof of his claim as the Messiah. They didn't really need any more signs of the fact that he was the Son of God and the promised Messiah. I mean, signs were all around them. People were seeing that had been blind before. People that were deaf were hearing. People who were mute were speaking. Lepers who had been cleansed of their leprosy. He had raised people from the dead. The gospel was being preached to people. All of this was an evidence of the fact that testifying that he was exactly who he said he was. But Jesus in his grace, and I think not so much for the benefit of the religious leaders 2,000 years ago, but for our benefit in this room today, Jesus conceded to give them one more sign. And he said, it's an evil and an adulterous generation that seeks after a sign. And he said, no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. First, Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what sign did Jesus give to these religious leaders? The sign of his death, his burial, and his uh, his resurrection. That just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so Jesus would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth following his death. Three days and three nights only, by the way, he was speaking of his resurrection, that he would rise from the dead. What was he communicating in all of that? The very thing that I've said. Don't trust in any salvation or any savior or any messiah or any religious system that has not conquered death. There are so many people today who can do so much talking and talking and talking about anything and everything, including life and death and eternity and everlasting life, but if they haven't conquered death, they're not to be trusted. And Jesus is not only spoke authoritatively about life and death, but then he proceeded to demonstrate his authority over death through his resurrection. So how does, do I make Jesus' victory over death my victory 
over death. How can I know that when I die, I will go immediately into heaven rather than into judgment? By putting my faith in Jesus, my trust in him for the forgiveness of my sins this morning. One day a group of people came to Jesus and they said to him, What shall we do that we may do the works of God? They probably had an iPad or a yellow pad and a pen or whatever. But they came. This was a sincere question on their part. But they're ready to take down, like, notes. What must I do to do the works of God? And the idea is, what kind of works does God want me to do so I can know that when I die, I'll go to heaven? So they're getting ready for, okay, you've got to climb the Himalayas on your hands and knees. You've got to make a pilgrimage to here. You've got to do this. You got. I mean, they're ready for the list. They're going to do the list. And Jesus spoke to them, and he said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The single greatest thing that we can do to honor our Creator, to honor God the Father, is to put our faith in his Son. You can climb the Himalayas on your knees as a religious exercise every year for the rest of your life. It will be meaningless to God. The single greatest thing that we can do as individual human beings to bless the heart of God and to show Him the honor, give Him the honor that He is due, is to put our faith in His Son for the forgiveness of our sins. There are no works or a lifetime of works that can compare to that. And when a person repents of their sin, says, I'm going in the wrong direction in life, and I'm willing to turn from my self-will and where sin has led me and others have led me, I'm done with going in that direction. And a person turns to God and says to God this morning, God, I confess that I'm a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of my life. And I believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. Yes, I do have that nagging sense that there must be more to life than I have experienced, that I cannot shake no matter what I've done in my life. But I believe that you loved me and my soul so much that you sent your son to die on that cross as the full and satisfying payment for my sin. And this morning I choose to put my faith in him. And when a person does that, the greatest miracle that a person can ever experience occurs in their life. It's the miracle of salvation. Because God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit will now come into your life. And you'll be born again by the Holy Spirit. You have the capacity now for relationship with God. And he will give you the, the will to do, the desire to live the life that God has for you. And he'll also give you the power to then live that life. And by putting my trust in Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of sins, the capacity for relationship with God, the confidence that we will be in heaven one day after this life. 
It brings a meaning and a purpose to our life that nothing else can supply because the one thing we've been created for is fellowship with God. And until we are engaged in what we've been created for, nothing makes sense in life. But once a person does that, everything clicks. They may not have two quarters to rub together in life, but they know my search is over. I'm engaged in a relationship with the God who has created me. And, there, and that's real and it's powerful. And it occurs by way of that spiritual birth. And it is the testimony of all of us as Christians. It is so important to give some thought to death before it comes. We're a funny culture as Americans. We give thought to everything but death. Really do. Just watch an American travel. Six suitcases. Is doing an overnighter in L.A. <laughs> they've got Pepto-Bismol. Uh, they've got allergy pills. They've got uh, anything that could possibly happen in life is packed in that suitcase along with 40 different changes of clothing because it's a transition period. We're between spring and summer. Who knows what we're going to need? And But we're crazy how thorough we are in our preparations for retirement, um, for security, the, the different things that we'll, we work on. We give all of this kind of, of thought to, the things that we plan. We plan our estates. We plan our wills, you know, and the things that we think about so thoroughly in life that don't mean anything, thinking all the time about some hobby or some, you know, goal in life and where we're going to go on vacation, everything but preparing for death and the life to come. There's only one preparation for death, and that's faith in Jesus because he's the only one who's conquered death. And this morning he is eager to share that victory with you. Salvation is just a prayer away. And there are going to be pastors and men and women up in front immediately after our service here. And if you have never trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, they would love to answer your questions and pray with you to receive that today and begin that relationship with God. And everything changes with that. One of the greatest witnesses, and then, you be, then your life individually becomes a witness or a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. And I've lost the words. It's coming to my mind. I know that he is living whatever men may say. I see his hands of mercy. I hear his voice of cheer. Just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. It is a miracle that he does in a human heart. Some of you sat here in this room today and while we were worshiping the Lord in song, and this is a new environment for you. God bless you. God bless you for coming here today. You say, what in the world are those people doing? Why in the world would they stand during a song when nobody told them to stand? 
because God told them to stand in their heart. You witnessed one of the most amazing things that can happen in life right before your eyes. You say, I don't get it. I don't understand it. You will the, mo- the moment you become a Christian. That's the miracle. We're not in some kind of a crazy land as Christians. This is real, and it is wonderful. It is the life that God intends for you, and it can be yours for the asking. Don't miss the opportunity today. The stakes are very high. They are eternity. They are heaven and hell for eternity, candidly. And these same, again, as I said, these pastors and men and women would love to pray with you today to begin the relationship with the God who created you and loved you enough to send his son to provide you with forgiveness and the privilege of fellowship with him. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, Act 4. And thank you for all that lies ahead of us because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for not only providing us with a victory over death, but a way to know you. And thank you, Lord, for making that victory a part of our life. Thank you for the witness of the resurrection that is so personal, the recognition that the quality of life that we live as Christians today can only be attributed to the fact that you are alive and living inside of us. Thank you, Father. For the sacrifice of your son, thank you for your stamp of approval, so to speak, upon him, demonstrated in his resurrection. We pray for each man and each woman, whatever their age, whatever their background, whatever they've heard in life, and you know all they've heard in life and all they've seen in life, that don't let yet know you. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak very powerfully to their heart right now of the importance that they not leave this room today until they have received your Savior. Give them the strength, Lord, to take that stand and to come forward and to receive your gift. Bless them in that way as you have done through untold hundreds of millions of people throughout history. And we ask these things of you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.